Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. It's a daunting day when a parent has to face the possibility that their child might have a mental illness. Ayesha Lal is a child psychiatrist in Florida, and she is kindly joining us today to help us explore these issues. Dr. Lal, thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. There are two big opening questions. How can anyone know if a change in a child's behavior actually warrants being called a mental health problem? And then to figure out what's the best thing to do. How do you know if it's a real mental health problem? That is a very good question. And in terms of child and adolescent psychiatry, we look at everything in a developmental context. So, for example, if adults are talking to us, they express themselves through verbal language. But if young children are communicating, they play as a form of language. If you're noticing changes in your child's play in aspects of their development, then get a full assessment for your child. For a teenager, if we're seeing changes in their behavior, for example, if they're moodier, irritable, having sleep problems, if they're not wanting to go to school anymore, if they're not spending time with their friends, then a developmental assessment is warranted. Many times this could just be a stage, but as a parent, you'd want to know, go to your pediatrician, you can talk with the school guidance counselor, you can use other services to help you get a thorough assessment, and that is the first step. I think it concerns a lot of people that they are overdiagnosing, but how long should a parent wait That's a difficult question to answer, and the way I would answer that is to say that you know your child best. If you as a parent have a gut feeling that something is going on, it does not hurt to get an assessment and to put your mind at ease. There are certain things that are appropriate for a child to go through. For example, beginning school. We generally give a child about a month to adjust to that. If there's the birth of a younger sibling, generally we'll give that child a couple of months to adjust to that change. If there is a parent who has been deployed overseas in the military, we generally give several weeks to a couple of months for that child to adjust to that. If as a parent your gut speaks to you, then please go with that. There's no hard and fast time rule for a certain number of weeks or months, but we really look at how the child is behaving. If there is any functional impact for your child, then you should get an evaluation. And by that, I mean if your child is no longer wanting to go to school, if your child is not eating well, not sleeping well, if your child is not showing interest in spending time with family or friends, then it doesn't matter how long it's been. That child needs to be assessed. Many times parents may not look adequately at their own input into their child's lives and how their kids act. You started to mention some of them, but some of them can be a bit more difficult, like a divorce, like a parent who has an alcohol or drug problem, or they themselves may have a psychiatric problem. This can be a very daunting challenge. How do you go about dealing with it? Absolutely. We do see a phenomenon called modeling in children and teenagers, and by that I mean children are very perceptive. They may pick up things around adults, around the house that you may not be aware of. They understand a parent's change in their emotional tone. They can pick that up and start modeling it. This is especially important for things such as anxiety disorders. If a parent is very anxious, the child may start modeling that behavior. For parents out there who are going through a difficult time 
themselves, reach out and use other supports that you might have, whether that is close family, friends, school guidance counselor, other community supports. It is important that first and foremost, you as a parent get the help that you need. I cannot stress that enough. We keep hearing that mental illnesses are found in younger and younger children. I know that when I was in training, there was a hesitancy, a great reluctance to say that a 12-year-old had a bipolar disorder or a depression or was developing schizophrenia. We're getting more and more comfortable giving younger and younger kids psychiatric diagnoses. Your thoughts on that, please? Yes. And on the one hand, we have in this day and age a better research and developmental strategy for assessing these children. But by and large, most younger children will not have a severe emotional or behavioral disorder. However, they may experience more common conditions such as ADHD, anxiety, or depression. Schizophrenia in young people is extremely rare. It is about 1 in 10,000 children. That is rare, as is bipolar disorder in young children. However, if there's a very strong family history of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, then the risk for that particular child will go up. By and large, in terms of child and adolescent psychiatry, common things are common and rare things are rare. Treatments for those conditions are more behavioral. We often use medication as a last resort. It's generally not our first line of treatment unless there's an extremely severe disorder. And I do definitely want to get back to the notion of what goes through your mind before you decide that a child needs medication or not. Let's bounce around a little bit because the topic of child mental health, it's it's tremendous. We are faced with looking at a fine line between alcohol and drug use, especially in young teenagers. The question always comes up, what is dangerous and what is experimental? When does a parent look away and ignoring the fact that a drug may or may not be illegal for the moment? We're just looking at it clinically. How does a parent address a kid who says, oh, yeah, everyone smokes marijuana. I'm going to do that, too. I think communication is key as a parent. If you try and communicate with your child, get to know their friends. As the adage, birds of a feather flock together, is really true. We also look at adolescents, where they are psychologically, and most adolescents are in the phase where they think they're invincible. They're in that stage of life where nothing applies to them. They think they know everything. And so it's hard to sit down and and have a very serious conversation about drug use with them, but communication is key. Secondly, many adolescents may try, they may experiment. However, when you should be concerned is if there's any serious change in your child's behavior. For example, you're seeing them suddenly becoming moody or irritable. You smell tobacco or alcohol on them. You notice that they're not going to school or their grades have declined significantly. You're finding that they're just not motivated to do things. It doesn't matter how long it's been. If you're noticing those kinds of issues with your child, then absolutely they need to be assessed. This is where experimentation, which can be more typical in some countries, can proceed very quickly to overt substance abuse, especially if there's a family history of substance abuse as well. Parents have to spend the time to get to know their children, and parents also have to spend the time to get to know themselves. Absolutely. And and as a parent, you can start by having your child's friends come over and let them do homework together in your house, let them just spend time together. And you as a parent, you should always know who your child is with, what they're doing, where they're going. And you want to have limits. You want to have boundaries for your child. 
really middle of the road is what we recommend. If you're a parent who's trying to be way too friendly with your child and anything goes, that that's not good because the child needs internal limits and structure. By the same token, if you're overly harsh and punitive, that's not good for a child either because they may rebel. So really middle of the road, communication, keep open lines of communication and get to really know your kids' friends will really help that discussion go much smoother. We hear so much about eating disorders and cutting disorders. They appear to be what we might call self-image problems. Where do we go with those concepts? How do we deal with cutting and eating disorders? We know that those particular conditions are more prevalent in countries such as the United States, westernized countries, where there seems to be a larger emphasis on physical appearance. All you have to do is go to the grocery store and you see so many magazines always talking about what celebrities look like. So the overall atmosphere is one of self-image. However, for kids who might be going through this, again, communication is key. Spending time with your kids, getting to know what's important to them, who they are as people, really fostering a healthy sense of self-esteem is very important. There's so many pressures on our kids. There's pressure to excel academically. There's pressure to excel in sports. Getting to know your child and finding what they enjoy doing, helping them to feel a sense of mastery and accomplishment in something really helps their psychological well-being. It's not 100%, but when a kid feels like they're being successful at sports, at school, academics, a project, whatever, what a difference that makes when they, they get a good sense of, of, of an ego satisfaction. I agree with you. It's amazing. It is hugely important. And, and getting to know if you have more than one child, they are different individuals, and one child may be good at may be completely different for another child, and really meeting them where they are and helping them develop that sense of accomplishment at a young age is so vitally important. I think that's really key. Now, in terms of things such as cutting, that is often not, not a suicide attempt. Often there's some internal angst, and the child or the teenager feels like that's the only way they can express themselves. It's very important to make sure the child has not had a history of trauma, such as any type of abuse. In some cases, that child may not reveal or disclose that, and cutting can become an emotional and a physical sense of relief. But if your child is going through those particular issues, it's important to get a thorough mental health assessment and then a very individualized treatment plan to, to help your particular child move forward and get through those issues. It, it, it's really fascinating to me. Cutting is their mechanism of releasing their tension. And so the question is, why don't they have other mechanisms? Very important variable. Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. For them, cutting becomes their coping skill. That's what they learn to do to release that internal pain that they're experiencing. A therapist, counselor, or psychiatrist can work with that child to help them learn more adaptive and more healthy coping mechanisms to replace that behavior, but to address the underlying issues at the same time. We hear a lot about autism 
And now with the onset, shall we say, with the birth of DSM-5, a lot of people who knew that their kids had Asperger's are suddenly being told that they no longer have Asperger's. It's been converted into the autistic spectrum. We know that in the United States, about 1 in 88 children will be diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. And rates are lower in other parts of the world. So I think the controversy is, are we overdiagnosing kids? Is there better recognition now? Are there better means of identifying and treating these conditions? However, autism is a neurodevelopmental or brain-based disorder. Oftentimes, there's a high genetic component that runs in the family. Here is early identification and treatment. For example, most children with moderate to severe autism will be diagnosed between the ages of two and three. But kids who have Asperger's or higher functioning may not be diagnosed until their teens or even later. So what happens here is we've missed out on years of treatment for those particular children. Again, early diagnosis and treatment, and those might entail speech and language therapy, adaptive skills, communication skills, role-playing, social support, and academic support. So wherever you feel you lie in terms of the, the controversy about diagnosis, the key is really to help each individual child with early diagnosis and a specific treatment plan tailored to his or her needs. So a child comes to you, the parents have been to the pediatrician, to a good psychologist, perhaps another behavioral program at a school, and they're frustrated. The parents don't know what to do. And you're faced with the notion of starting a child on a medication, which instantly brings up a lot of eyebrows and, oh, my God, here we go again. And yet properly these medications can be helpful. How do you go through the process as a, as a physician and a psychiatrist to decide, yes, medication, no medication? I, I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Very important, and what I always do is I sit down with parents and I hear their concerns about it. Oftentimes, there are myths out there that they've heard, old wives' tales, etc. I have a session where I talk to parents about what they've heard and what they believe will happen, and I always tell parents that medication is not my first-line treatment for children and adolescents, nor should it be. We really start with a detailed assessment, do thorough evaluation. Then we go to certain psychotherapies as the targeted or preferred treatment. And then medication is only reserved for those children who have moderate to severe symptoms and are really struggling. Decide to start a child on medication, you should have a clear outline of a treatment plan. For example, if the child is so depressed that they're not going to school, then we will talk about starting them on an antidepressant. But typically, Six to nine months of initial treatment after they're improving is what we recommend. If they're doing really well for about nine to 12 months, the depression has resolved, then we'll take the child off the medication. So these are not things that we put a child on permanently that they stay on forever, with the exception of a very severe condition such as schizophrenia or severe bipolar disorder, which puts the child in another treatment category altogether. If we are using medication, we tell the parents what to expect, what things to look for, just as important, and that may include psychotherapy. We work with schools to get children particular educational plans that might be helpful for them. Medications for child and adolescent psychiatry are not chronic, with the exception of something such as medication for ADHD, 
which a child may need on an ongoing basis. What about the child, a teenager, who has a suicide attempt? That can be a conundrum because it looks like they're depressed, but a lot of times we find out that it's actually in response to an environmental or an emotional disappointment. My boyfriend left me. I'm going to kill myself. And they do. They try. Some of them do succeed. But how do you delineate something that got to the point that there was a suicide attempt? And it's got to be complicated. It is complicated. And again, communication is key among the family members. So if you really get to know your child well, you know what's going on in their lives, then open those lines of communication with them. However, teenagers are known for being difficult in terms of sharing things with their parents. Teenagers are, by nature, they're impulsive. They do things first and they think about it later. And this makes sense as some of their some, some of their impulse control tracks in their brain don't fully develop until they're in their 20s. However, we take every suicide attempt as a serious issue. Whether or not it was planned or impulsive, it's important to get that teenager into treatment. Something is going on. It's important, again, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's important for your teenager to have a sense of accomplishment and mastery and competence and have people that they can talk to, whether it's friends, cousins, family members, etc. Because if a teenager has just broken up with her boyfriend, and to her that was her whole world, then she may react a certain way. But if she knows that there are people that she can talk to who are supportive of her, she can say anything to, will help her on the road to recovery. I almost routinely ask all the late adolescents that I see, I, I think that we tend to overlook the impact of premenstrual syndrome. For many women, it's not an issue. But I do on occasion find a young girl who says, oh, yes, oh, yes, I can't stand things. I get so depressed. It's almost sad that we don't look outside of more traditional psychiatric, the other medical issues in a person's life. Absolutely. And I think in general, as child and adolescent psychiatrists, we take everything in the context of biopsychosocial issue. And by that, I mean biological, what genetic or family influences play a role any medical conditions. Psychologically, we look at the person's temperament. We look at how their coping skills, their forms of communication. We look at school. We look at peers, friends, community support. Every child that we assess should be in the context of those three major things. You're talking about premenstrual symptoms. I would have the teenager do some mood charting, and these are available online. They're free. Have the person do mood charting so they can really monitor their menstrual cycle and changes in mood as well as sleep. There's a pattern that develops. Absolutely, we will treat that and target some symptoms. But in general, we look at everything in a developmental context. We talk to parents and we talk to child or teenager as well. And sometimes we get reports in school. We're detectives in a way that we take all of this information and integrate it into a specific treatment plan for that individual. Dr. Ayesha Lal is a psychiatrist in Central Florida, and she's been kind enough to talk to us about a topic that's very important and very big. And we're going to get back with her in the future to look at some specifics. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much.